This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, and I'll be reading the entire chapter, 18 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of this woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would ready our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive it. And even as it describes a thing which is scandalous and sinful in 
the history of your people and our family history. We see in this text your gospel shown forth and the the power of redemption that we have in Christ. And so I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive that and that it would prepare us as we ready ourselves to take the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, it's not the most popular case or the most popular evidence for the reliability of Scripture, but one that I think does have some power is the fact that the stories in the Bible, the characters in them, they are not the sort of stories and they're not the sort of people that we or anyone else would make up if they were trying to paint someone as heroic or as a hero of the past. If you think of works of fiction, if you think of mythology, usually the heroes are heroic and the adversaries are adversarial. And if there's change and growth, it generally moves in one direction. You might have a hero in a story who starts weak and timid, but finds his place, finds his powers and abilities and becomes a great hero. Or you might have a villain who is corrupted and becomes worse over time. What you usually don't see is the hero of a story who seems to be learning and growing and has achieved near the peak of his power. And then out of nowhere, he does something really bad, something really out of character, even going back to the exact same troubles he had at the start. I think if you pitched such a story to a publisher, you know, to make a movie or a show, they would reject it because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make for a coherent narrative that people would want to hear. And I say that this helps to prove that the Bible is historical and reliable, containing these stories that wouldn't people wouldn't make up, because this isn't how we would tell a story. This is describing real life and real people. And while stories generally move characters in a certain direction, real life is much more messy. It is much more complicated and real people are much more complicated. Life before the face of God is much more affected by sin. It's much less consistent. It's much less steady progress than we would often like to think. And this is exactly what we see as we come to the next installment in the life of Abraham. So think back for a moment of what we have seen thus far in Abraham's life. God called him from his country to go to a promised land. Abraham, by faith, went on that journey. But there was a setback. There was a famine that sent Abraham and his people from the promised land to Egypt. And then Abraham there was embroiled in a scandal because he lied about his wife being his sister. Sounds familiar. Because he feared the king's jealousy. He nearly lost his wife to another man. But in Egypt, God intervened and saved Abraham and prevented the great evil from happening. Not only did God preserve Abraham, but he continued to bless Abraham. God gave Abraham property. He gave him military victories. He even helped him to preserve Sodom and the righteous lot for a time in battle. 
God entered into a covenant of grace with Abraham, where Abraham was promised innumerable descendants and blessings that would come through him to the whole world. Abraham had a son, Ishmael, and he was promised another who was to come through his once barren and elderly wife, Sarah. So despite Abraham's sin, God blesses Abraham. God hears him. Even in the ordeal of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we see some of the greatest wickedness and abomination imaginable, for the sake of Abraham, God would have spared the city for ten righteous if they had been there, and he still spares Lot. Now, we would think if we were reading this like any other story, at least up to this point, we would think, okay, Abraham's learning, Abraham's growing, he's on his way, he's working out the bugs, and he's going to be a truly heroic hero of the story. But here in chapter 20, we see that Abraham goes back to exactly the same sins, exactly the same problems that he had at the start back in chapter 12, after everything that God has done through him and for him. And we will look at this rather surprising regression, this relapse into sin and disobedience today in four points. First, we see treachery in verses 1 and 2. As he did before, Abraham will lie. He will deceive a king concerning his wife. Second, we will see truth in verses 3 through 7. Although Abraham is not interested in telling the truth, God intervenes to reveal the truth to the king, and yet in such a way that will preserve his people. Third, we will see a trial in verses 8 through 13. Abraham has to come before the king and give account for his actions. But then fourth and finally, we see a turning in verses 14 through 18. Despite Abraham's treachery, God will use this situation to bless him even more. So again, we have treachery, truth, trial, and turning. Those are our points for today. So first, we will look at the treachery in verses 1 and 2. So we see in verse 1 that Abraham moves. He travels from where he had been in the land of Mamre to the south. We don't get any particular reason for why he did this, but given that he was still a nomad, he lived in tents, he had no particular land or place of his own, there must have arisen some need that caused him to move. Perhaps there was another famine, like the one that initially drove him into Egypt. What we are told is that Abraham does something when he makes this move to the land of Gerar that he had done before in Egypt. When he talks about Sarah, his wife, he tells people that she is his sister, not his wife. Now remember, this is a half-truth. Abraham and Sarah do share the same father. Abraham will reveal this later. They were half-siblings. But speaking of her this way is meant to deceive. It is meant to be dishonest. It is meant to conceal the fact that Sarah is, in fact, Abraham's wife. Now, we're not told this time exactly why Abraham does this, so since, though since we have already seen this before in chapter 12, we could probably assume something similar is happening. Apparently, even in her old age, Sarah was still beautiful and desirable, such that a man who saw her would be inclined to take her. And Abraham feared that someone more powerful than him, perhaps a king, would kill him to get her. 
we will find out later that this fear was misplaced. But this is what Abraham does, and he does it again after all this time, after seeing what this sin did before, as well as seeing all the ways since that God has protected and preserved and provided for him. Of course, the predictable outcome happens. Abraham sets up this treacherous situation, and Abimelech, believing that Sarah is for the taking, and Abimelech, being the king of the region, does send for and take Sarah with the intent to marry her. Now, this Abimelech, as well as another one who comes after him, probably his descendant, they're going to be prominent figures in the future of Abraham's family. They are actually kings, we will find out later, of the area that would be the area of the Philistines. Now, the name Abimelech means my father is king. Perhaps a little boastful, but at least you know who you're talking to. But things are off to a rocky start with this Abimelech. Abraham has begun by deceiving him and ensnaring him into evil. That brings us to our second point. After the treachery, we see the truth in verses 3 through 7. While Abraham seems disinterested in protecting his wife and his family and the covenant promises that have been made to him, remember by now that they have taken the specific form of a son that was to be born to Sarah, God is still going to honor and protect his covenant promises even if Abraham sins. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The covenant with Abraham was not a covenant of works. Abraham could not obtain life and blessedness by his obedience. He was sinful. He's still sinful even later in his life after God has blessed him so richly and revealed to him so much. Abraham is accounted as righteous, not in himself, not because of anything he does, because we see that that doesn't measure up. He is accounted righteous because God makes him righteous. God does what is necessary for the fulfillment of the covenants. Now, this doesn't just apply in the spiritual realm as it pertains to Abraham's salvation, which is by grace alone through faith alone. But it applies in the temporal realm, in the earthly realm as well, in which God protects and preserves Abraham and Sarah and the people and the nation that are to come from them. So God directly intervenes this time by coming to Abimelech in a dream. He acts in such a way as to bring this evil situation to an end while still protecting Abraham and even providing for his good. So God appears and tells Abimelech, this pagan king, the last thing that anyone would want to hear from God. Indeed, you are a dead man. You have committed a sin worthy of death. And God fills him in on the specifics. Because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now just as an aside, we live in a day where marriage is not particularly honored and respected. Not only have we discussed in recent weeks, looking at Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality and the things proceeding from it, now, this is defiled marriage in God's design for male and female. But even marriage between male and female is undermined by adultery and fornication and unlawful divorce 
in a culture that widely doesn't really care or even celebrates these things. But these are sins. And as with all sins, they are egregious enough to warrant immediate and eternal death of any who practice them. Taking a wife who should be the wife of another man was enough for God to show up to Abimelech and kill him. Even as Abimelech didn't even know how he ended up in this situation. Now, there is grace for our sins, but this is because of God's goodness and love and favor and not because our sins, even the popular and overlooked sins of our day, are any less deserving of death and judgment. Now, the issue with Abimelech, he was not a willing participant in such evil. We find out that he had not yet had any relations with Sarah, and he pleads his case to God. Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. So Abimelech realizes that he has been tricked. He has been deceived. We also get here in Abimelech's telling another important detail. Sarah played along. She told Abimelech that Abraham was her brother. She was no passive victim in this story. She was complicit in it. She was willing to go along with it wherever it led. Both Abraham and Sarah, after everything God has done for both of them and everything he has promised to do for them, they committed this fraud and treachery together. And so Abimelech pleads that he has done this in the integrity of his heart. He thought, based on the information he had, that he was innocent, that he was doing something that was right and acceptable. And God responds, starting in verse 6, he agrees that Abimelech had acted in integrity. But he also reveals his own purposes. He intervenes in this way to prevent, Abra prevent Abimelech from sinning and also to protect Sarah and Abraham. And Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, finds out who his real father and his real king is as God starts giving the orders. He commands in verse 7 that Abimelech restore Sarah to Abraham. He reveals that Abraham is a prophet. Abraham is one to whom the word of the Lord has been repeatedly revealed. And even as it was Abraham's sin that brought this sin upon Abimelech, Abraham's intercession will save Abimelech and his house, his nation, for as we find out later, all of them had been afflicted because of this sin. Now, practically speaking, this, this resolves this situation in such a way that Abimelech will not punish or harm Abraham or Sarah. But it also shows forth a spiritual reality the need for mediation because of sin. Abraham, as a prophet, will also carry out a priestly function for one of the kings of the earth. Abraham will act as a type of Christ, making intercession for the sins of the people. He is an imperfect type, obviously, as it was his sin and treachery that created this mess in the first place. But even in this, God's grace and mercy are shown forth to and through Abraham for him and for others. Of course, there is another option. 
If Abimelech does not restore Sarah, it's over. He and his nation will perish. This too fits into the symbolism. It fits into the typology. One can either be reconciled to God through Christ's mediation or be doomed to die in sin. We don't know if Abimelech becomes a follower or worshiper of God. He does at least function as a picture of salvation realities that are shown forth for God's people to see. So how does Abimelech receive this news? Well, this brings us to our next point. After treachery and truth, we come to the trial in verses 8 through 13. As one might expect, when confronted by God and charged with the penalty of death, Abimelech seeks a speedy resolution. When he wakes up early the next morning, he sets out to make the situation right. He calls his servants, his counsel together, and tells them about this vision he had, this dream. And they are afraid. When God shows up and tells you that your king and your nation is under his wrath, that's not a good situation. Although at least, unlike many, Abimelech and his servants, they're willing to heed the warning. They're willing to do something about it. So Abimelech calls Abraham in to answer for his crimes. And he rightly and justly criticizes Abraham's actions. He asks if he had offended Abraham in such a way that Abraham would perpetuate this evil. Now what this demonstrates is that although Abimelech and his kingdom are a pagan nation, he is a pagan king, they have among them at least some recognition of good and evil. As a function of common grace, though all are evil, all are sinful, all are depraved to a certain extent, there is some recognition of God's moral order even by those who reject God. This is often referred to by theologians as natural law. In most societies, even those that are farthest removed from God, there are some moral truths that still generally show forth. Things like, it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to commit adultery. And in this case, it is wrong to marry a woman who is already married to another man. Now, there is much discussion and controversy in our day about natural law and the role that it plays. I was taught in seminary a particular two-kingdom doctrine that says that natural law is the law for the government of society and that we as Christians should not use the law as it's taught in the Bible for such purposes. We don't use the Bible when we deal with government and politics. It's a popular view. I think it is mistaken. Because natural law is, while it comes from God, it is incomplete and imperfect revelation. We all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suffer the effects of the fall. We don't think rightly. We don't reason rightly. And so natural law is imperfect revelation, while God's word is perfect, yeah, perfect revelation. And so when we have clear revelation... So we have the moral law, we have the Ten Commandments, we have the various applications for them. We should not be afraid of using them and appealing to them even as we deal with the governments and the laws they make. But all the same, we do see as a function of common grace 
some general restraining and some general use of God's law, even among those who don't have it as it's revealed in Scripture, the law that's written on the heart, to use Paul's words from Romans 2. And that is the case with Abimelech. He recognizes, even though he doesn't know God and doesn't know the Bible, something is wrong with this situation. But Abraham's response shows that he was afraid. He saw that the fear of God was not in this place. And that's why he did what he did. Now, it's not clear exactly what he meant by this. If this strictly meant that Yahweh was not worshipped there, or if there was some greater public display of immorality, as pagan cultures often have, did Abraham see something in Gerar that made him think that trying to keep his wife would result in trouble and death for him? But whatever brought him to this point, he was wrong. For one, he was wrong because Abimelech and those of his kingdom clearly did recognize the evil in a man, even the king, taking another's wife. And for another, Abraham is showing once again a lack of trust in God's ability to protect his people and bring his promises to pass. God does not allow his promises to fail. And he certainly doesn't need our sin and our disobedience to accomplish his purposes. He can and does and will use them. But we don't want to be a people who try to justify evil means by the good ends they might accomplish. And further still, Abraham is willing to do something so disgraceful as basically prostituting his wife out to another man. That's not okay anywhere by anyone. Even the pagans recognize that. Now, Abraham, in a certain sense, seems to try to justify himself. He does reveal the half-truth. Sarah really is his half-sister. She and Abraham shared a common father, but not a common mother. We also find in verse 13 that not only had Abraham done this treachery in Egypt or in Gerar at the present time, but it seems they may have done it in other places, as it seems that he told Sarah to say this everywhere they went. So this cowardice and the despicable results of it are, in fact, a recurring feature. I mentioned at the beginning how no one would write a fictional story with a hero like Abraham. Abraham has this problem of recurringly and regularly putting his wife in danger because of his own fear and cowardice and his own lack of faith. But this does show something important to us. God's grace and favor come to sinners. Abraham was not an inherently righteous man. He was accounted as righteous, by faith in the righteous God and his righteous Christ. But if Abraham can be forgiven and blessed with all the riches of God's covenantal blessings, so can you. But speaking of those blessings, we come to our final point. After the treachery, the truth, and the trial, we come to the turning in verses 14 through 18. So after this truth was revealed to Abimelech, he would have been rather justified to be angry. Abraham had brought trouble on his land, and he was the king. And although God had told him not to do this, he could have said, off with Abraham's head, and it could have happened. 
But Abimelech heeds the word of God, even as a pagan king of a pagan people. He deals with Abraham according to God's word and will, and better than Abraham deserves. Not only does Abimelech let Abraham have Sarah back and lets them go on their way, he actually blesses them, gives them livestock, gives them servants, gives them money, 1,000 pieces of silver. That is a large sum of money. Gives them the privilege of dwelling wherever in his land they want. Despite Abraham's sin and treachery, the fear of the Lord has caused Abimelech not only to let Abraham and Sarah go unharmed, but to provide them with even more blessings. Perhaps Abimelech, practically speaking, realized that, hey, this guy is a prophet of a powerful God. Might be good to keep him around. But whatever his motives he gives of his kingly wealth to Abraham, we also see this address to Sarah. He says that he has given Abraham, referred to here as her brother, maybe pointing out that, hey, you know, you lied to me about this, gave him 1,000 pieces of silver. Now, this giving of money is an acknowledgement of Sarah's innocence. He's paying for his wrong. He's basically paying a fine and assigning no wrong to Sarah. Of course, we see in this she was rebuked. She had done wrong in going along with Abraham's crooked scheme. But despite this, the king deals with him and with her better than they deserve. Now, this would come as a rebuke. They were caught. They were wrong. Their sins found them out. But Abimelech deals with them not according to their sin, but according to their God. This also points us to an important truth. For as we are prone to sin, even as God's people, God deals with us not according to our sin, but according to the righteousness of Christ. What we see here is a picture of God's grace despite sin. We see that Abraham does as he was supposed to do. He intercedes to God for Abimelech and his kingdom, and the kingdom is healed. Apparently prior to this time, or prior to Abraham's intercession, that the women in Abimelech's house and in the nation, they were unable to bear children. But that punishment is removed. Now isn't it fascinating that this had also been Sarah's problem the whole time? She had been unable to bear children. In a certain sense, Sarah is healed at this time because the next thing we will see in Genesis is Sarah having a son, having Isaac. So, in this text today, we have seen history. We have seen Abraham and Sarah and their travels and troubles that come because of their sin. Again, Abraham is not the hero of the kind of story that we would probably want to tell. But what Abraham does here is point us to greater realities. It points us to the fact that God saves sinners. He points us to the fact that though we belong to God, we still struggle with sin in this life, and yet our God still favors us, forgives us, and works all things for our good. Now, this certainly does not mean that we should sin. But if we do sin, we have a mediator and an advocate in our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. 
Now, speaking of that, Abraham also provides in this text a picture of the mediator and advocate we have, a prophet who is also a priest and a king, who declares to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation, who offered himself as a sacrifice to reconcile us to God and take our sins away, and who still intercedes for us, and who rules over us and subdues and conquers his and our enemies. That is our Savior, shown forth even in this scandalous episode from our family history. That is the same Savior who has given us this supper of which we are about to partake, in which his body and blood are shown forth, his death is proclaimed till he comes, and we are nourished by his grace and by the Holy Spirit. So the question is this, do you know this Savior today? The call of the gospel is to repent of your sins, turn away from them and to Christ's forgiveness, to believe in him, who he is and what he has done, and to receive new life, a new heart, hope everlasting. Now perhaps today you do belong to Christ, but you are ashamed of your sin. God saves sinners. God helps and preserves sinners. God gives his means of grace like this sacrament to sinners. If you belong to Christ, if you are one of his sheep, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. If he still saves and uses Abraham, he can do that for you. But also know that if you willfully sin and rebel against God, God sees and knows everything. Just as he found out Abraham's sin, even using a pagan king as the means of finding out, he will find your sin out. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Strive for obedience as you are sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not die in your sins. Do not perish in your sins, but flee to Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, even as it documents a scandalous and sinful episode in the history of your people and how Abraham did a wicked thing and fell so short of your will and your law. You still bless him. You still forgive him. And even in this, you show forth your gospel. You show forth that you save sinners, that you preserve and protect your people, even through their own sin and unfaithfulness. I pray that we would be mindful of our sin, that we would repent of it, that we would turn from it. If there are any here today who do not know you, who do not know the truth of Christ, that by your spirit you would illuminate their hearts and minds to receive the gospel. And prepare us now to partake of this sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.